Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Well, the period of meditation, find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed. Finding a suitable upright posture, making any adjustments necessary so that you can find stability in your posture, that you're upright, back is straight without being rigid, but body as relaxed as it can be around the upright skeleton. Eyes gently closed, jaw released, shoulders, belly soft. And remember why you meditate, your intention, your hope, your aspiration for your meditation practice, your Dharma practice. Whether you are seeking to decrease the stress, the suffering in your life, or the ultimate reduction of liberation. Kindness is always appropriate. Friendliness towards your mind, your body, your heart. As we establish mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental awareness of your breath, your body, your heart and mind. I encourage you to bring an attitude of kindness, of friendliness, patience and tolerance to your own mind, no matter how many times it wanders away from the present. towards your body, no matter how uncomfortable it might become sitting still, just tolerating it. 
accepting it. And allow the breath to be the object of our experience that anchors us to the present first few minutes. Mindfulness of the breath. Breathing in, feel the sensations the breath creates at the nostrils. Breathing out, feel the sensations the breath creates. When the attention gets drawn away from the breath, just name where it's gone back into planning or remembering, hearing, whatever's taking your attention away from the breath, and then gently return. Choose to reestablish mindfulness of the breath over and over.
of course the attention gets drawn away from the breath it takes much effort long-term discipline for most to become proficient at staying present concentrating on the breath We're not trying to stop the mind from thinking. Thinking is the mind's job. Just as the lung's job is to breathe, the heart's job is to beat, the mind's job is to think. It does it all by itself. As you sit here paying attention to your breath and your mind keeps going, But waking up to the ability to choose where we place our attention rather than being involved in the thoughts lost in our cravings or aversions, our doubts or fears. The ability to disengage. To be present in the body.
present time awareness. We choose the breath because it's always happening. You can always check in, am I breathing in or out? What's it feel like? If you're pretty new to this kind of practice, keep this as a primary focus for now. Keep ignoring your mind, coming back to the breath. Breaking our addiction, our identification with the contents of the mind, all of the plans and fantasies. Learning to live more in the body, awareness of the body with the body. And the Buddha's instructions expand from the breath to the whole body, all of the sensations head to toe. Feeling the posture, knowing that you're sitting. Contact with the chair, the cushion, how your hands feel resting in your lap or on your legs. We can open to the other sense doors rather than a narrow focus on the breath. More open awareness of sensation and experience of smelling and seeing, tasting and hearing. We can open to the mind itself rather than ignoring it, turning our attention on the process of mind thoughts that seem to appear out of nowhere, arising, sustaining, proliferating, and passing by consciousness. Rather than being involved with your thoughts, try to just watch your mind.
the more we investigate our experience, bring mindfulness to the sensations, emotions, thoughts, the more we see that everything is perceived, experienced as either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, every thought, every sound, every breath. Which leads to the ultimate realization, understanding that it's not what's happening It's how we are responding, how we're relating to what's happening that causes us to suffer or to be at peace. It's not the sounds, it's not the sensations. It's not even the emotions, it's how we're relating to the emotions. For the last couple of minutes, bringing an attitude of loving kindness with a simple phrase, may I learn to be at ease just as I am. May I learn to be at ease with this body just as it is, this mind, this world just as it is. Extending this same wish to each other, to the people you introduced yourself to tonight in the small groups, individually. The understanding that this is a universal, healthy desire for ease. Just as I wish to be at ease, May you be at ease with yourself just as you are, with your mind, your body. May you be at ease in this world just as it is. I'm extending this wish to the whole community all us gathered here in Venice, as well as all of the people all over the country and planet. 
connected to our Sangha, our community. Sending loving kindness. And then radiating this wish for ease outward in all directions throughout our homes, our neighborhoods, cities, states, countries, continents. Until we cover the entire planet and all of the beings, all living beings, human, animals, with love and kindness. May all beings be at ease. Returning to yourself, this living being right here, your body, your heart, your mind. The person we have the most influence over is ourself. The only person that can do the work of transformation, of awakening, of healing, of recovering for ourselves for our own efforts. The Buddha said we could search all realms of existence and never find anyone more worthy of our love than ourselves. So take that moment, this moment to remember your worthiness as well as your ability to awaken, to be at ease in this mind, body, just as it is. Buddhism offers us this really radical proposal. Um, teaching potential that uh, it is possible as human beings, it's possible to be totally at ease, 
at peace, free from suffering. We could say happy. Happy is, I don't mind happy, but I know a lot of people say like that our connotation with happy is like it's too associated with pleasure. And the Buddha never said you can have pleasure all of the time. <laughs> he just said, it's possible actually for us to live our lives, train our minds through this meditation, renunciation, live our lives in a way that um, we don't create suffering. On top of what's already going to be unpleasant and difficult and uh, challenging, that it's possible to uh, become peaceful, equanimous, compassionate, kind, if we are willing to do the hard work, if we're willing to uh, commit to a, a disciplined training of the mind and the heart and, and our speech and our actions and our uh, attitudes and outlooks. I was wondering like, if you'd reflect for a moment on uh, with, with the assumption that uh, nothing in your life needs to change. Nothing outside of you needs to change for you to be happy, for you to be totally at ease, free from suffering. Now, I'm sure we can think of some examples of situations that um, do need to change, but let's just play the game of nothing outside of you needs to change, that everything that you need in order to, that I need, that we all need, in order to get free is all inside us. It's all internal work and our attitudes and our outlooks and our reactivity and our way of showing up way of relating to our own minds and relating to the world and relating to each other, that it's all in us and that nobody else needs to change for you to be happy. Nothing. The world doesn't need to change. It can stay in its fucked up state <laughs> of ignorance and greed and hatred. And the world can stay just the way it is and we can learn to not suffer at it or about it. And that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have tremendous compassion for all of the ignorance and confusion and uh, forms of oppression and the ability to care deeply and not suffer, to have equanimity, to be at ease in the midst of Total acceptance, the world is like this. Still working for a positive change. I don't, I, I sometimes, I don't love that sometimes when we get to this conversation, it sounds a little too complacent of like, I'll just accept everything and not work for a positive change on the planet. That's not what's being said. The Buddha who ended all of his suffering spent 40 years out as a social, political, spiritual activist. He didn't just like chill. He spoke out against racism and sexism and the caste system that, that he was in and the wars and the violence. He was, he was a political activist. The, the guy was 
very much against racism and sexism and uh, all forms of, of human oppression and ignorance, confusion. So it's not, I'm gonna be so at peace that I'm not going to care or be engaged or try to create a positive change. I'm just the ability to be at peace and that nothing outside you needs to change for you to be at peace. It's all in here. It's like part of the good news and the bad news of Buddhism. Um, like the, the good news is you can do it. <laughs> it's possible, right? That's the good news is like, it's possible. Um, and it's totally an inside job. And sort of the bad news too, is that all of the causes of suffering, it's so much easier if we could just point outside of ourselves and say like, I'm unhappy because I'm suffering because of all of these external circumstances, which is what we do, right? Isn't that what you spend most of your life blaming? <laughs> I would be happy if everybody else would just act right, shut the fuck up, then I'd be happy. Uh, but actually that doesn't need to, and, and maybe there's, probably it's not even true. I don't know, you ever be in that situation, you ever get to that place in your life where it's like, everything's good. Nobody's even fucking with you for a moment, <laughs> but you're still not happy. You're, there's still that kind of irritable discontent craving that we have where it's like, yeah, this is pretty good, but it would be better if not suffering is pretty good, but pleasure is even better than not suffering. Some form of pleasure. In the um, fourth foundation of mindfulness, first foundation, we pay attention to our body as I started the meditation instructions, as I do just about all the time. First foundation, what's happening in your body? And the breath is such a good object because it's always happening. For most people, it's a good object. Am I breathing in? Am I breathing out? Gets us out of our head, gets us into our body. Second foundation, I pointed to a little bit at the end of the uh, instruction tonight that everything that we experience, whether it's the breath or a thought, sensation, emotion, is perceived as being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Third foundation is stop ignoring your mind like you're doing when you're paying attention to your breath and pay attention to your mind. Try to observe, have a unentangled relationship with thoughts arising and passing, a quality of knowing this is a plan, this is a memory, this is a hope, this is a fear, this is craving, this is hatred, and knowing that those are thoughts arising in your mind. And of course, especially the afflictive emotions have a physical correlation, a somatic and embodied, you know, hatred in the mind makes you ass tight. <laughs> or your palms sweaty, or your, you know, jaw clench. And so we can see the connection between what's happening as a thought and how it's manifesting in the body. 
In the fourth foundation, the Buddha says, okay, so you're here, right? You're present with your body, with your mind, with your uh, feeling tones. He says, now check out what's true about your human experience. And he gives all of these lists of what you will see, the truth that you will see. The, the um, fourth foundation is called mindfulness of the Dhamma, of the truth, of reality. And it's this uh, map and this explanation of the human condition that we all experience. And the, one of the first things he says is the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering as repetitive craving and clinging and aversion. You'll see that, right? You sit here and meditate and you'll see like, oh yeah, there's some suffering here. Mindfulness of suffering, mindfulness of craving, of attachment feels like this. You'll see, uh, and this is one of the reasons why mindfulness is so much different than like concentration practices. Because concentration practices, if you just focus on the breath, if you, it lets you ignore the truth. Where mindfulness is like, no, turn towards the truth, see it clearly. It says, you'll see moments of nirvana, the third noble truth. You'll be mindful of, oh, this is a moment of not suffering. And you can bring mindfulness to the eight factors on the Eightfold Path so that the Four Noble Truths of the Eightfold Path are a mindfulness practice as part of what we're paying attention to, not just a belief system or a theoretical framework for like understanding suffering, but meditating on suffering, being mindful of it. Not just understanding that craving, but when craving is arising, which it is most of the time, isn't it? of actually turning towards your desires, your cravings, your aversions, and bringing your non-judgmental awareness. Craving feels like this. These kind of thoughts, these kind of sensations, this sort of attitude of mind. The second thing that's on the traditional list is what I really want to talk, this is all leading up to what I really want to talk about, which is a list of five things that are traditionally called the five hindrances. And partly in answer to that um, question or that proposal that I started with of, of what needs to change in order for us to be at ease. And uh, I don't know if you have it, but I've always kind of had that question of like, well, why is it so hard to be happy? Why is it so hard to be at peace? It sounds, you know, like the statues look like they're at peace. It sounds, you listen to the Dharma, you're like, it sounds good. Like mindfulness, non-attachment, compassion, check. I'll do that. But it's hard that no matter, even practicing mindfulness for years, um, to really develop non-attachment, to really develop compassion, it takes uh, time, it takes effort, it takes, it's a long-term process. And the hindrances, which are craving, partially, the, the part of the reason I want to talk about this, and one of the things I love the best about Buddhism is that it's normalizing. So we can call these hindrances, but partly what the Buddha is saying is, Part of what you'll see and is totally normal and everyone will see is you will see that when you meditate, if you're paying attention, you will see 
craving for pleasure. And that that's normal and it's the normal state of human beings to be in craving for pleasure. You've heard me say it before, unless you're here for the first time, because I say it almost every week. Not your fault. Not our fault. We're born into a body that craves. It's a craving body. It's totally impersonal. It's just the result of evolution. Evolutionary biology explains it very well. It's just you're just born into a body that craves. It's not a lack of morality. It's not a lack of wisdom on your part. It's just part of the human survival instinct. But it hinders, the reason it's called the, the first hindrance is because it's hard to be at ease, happy, free, when your mind is constantly giving you this bullshit of you would be happy if. You can't be happy until. You can't be at ease in the midst of this because you have this strong desire or this craving or this obsession. You have to satisfy it. Even though it's a lie that your mind is telling you, it's so persuasive, totally normal, not your fault. Part of the first noble truth, first thing that the Buddha says of the hindrances, one of the things that hinders our, and it's not that you have craving, it's not that us human beings are craving beings, it's that we believe it. This is the key to the Dharma. It's not that you experience all five of these things. It's that you believe them to be who you are. Craving is normal. And even enlightenment isn't going to get rid of it. Now, some forms of Buddhism say, you, you, you know, when you become a Buddha, you will no longer have any craving. It's the end of craving. But the Buddha himself said, I'm totally free from suffering, but these hindrances remain. He called them Mara. He referred to them as this character in his mind that craves, that has judgment, has hatred, has fear, has doubt. He said, this shit's still here. I'm just not suffering about it anymore. I woke up that it's not that personal, it's just part of the human condition, and I no longer suffer about it. It's a hindrance as long as we cling to it and identify with it as who we are and, and are reactive, craving, rather than, and maybe you've gotten there or you will get there to this place where sometimes your mind gives you suggestions. <laughs> and you just see them as suggestions and you just see like oh that's just a thought it's totally inappropriate <laughs> i'm not going to do that i'm not going to satisfy that craving i'm not going to obey that and sometimes it feels like a suggestion and sometimes it feels like a demand where your mind is saying you fucking have to suffer about this now most of the time when your mind tells you you have to suffer about something you do it, right? You're like, yes, yes, ma'am. I will now commence suffering.
the second hindrance is normalizing craving first one normalizing that everyone hates hatred fear anger especially around unpleasant experiences totally normal to hate discomfort nobody's very good at being uncomfortable without some level of training ourselves to be good at being uncomfortable it's counter to our survival instinct we hate pain pain will kill us avoid it totally normal not your fault that you aren't very good at being tolerant and patient and compassionate that's a developed skill the buddha called it one of the hindrances is that we're born in this system that's not good at being uncomfortable, but there's so much discomfort that comes our way every day. How many unpleasant experiences did you have today? Did you go to work? I mean, <laughs> did you sit in any traffic? Did you talk to any human beings? Did you have to deal, you know, like unpleasantness on one level or another, unpleasant smells, sounds, sights, tastes, how about your own mind? How many unpleasant thoughts arose in your brain today? Critical, judgmental. It's pretty unpleasant to have a brain, isn't it? Some of the time. It's also, I mean, I don't want to, it's also pretty amazing. But often, you know, we're just bombarded with pleasant, unpleasant, and clinging and aversion. Totally normal. It is a hindrance if we take it personal and we obey it. The next thing on the list, uh, he said, was um, it's normal to be anxious, restless. It's, it's normal to uh, be fidgety. <laughs> To not uh, uh, be nervous. You're a, you know, we're a nervous species. We have a, you know, like we have a, having a nervous system is part of our biology. And its job is to be a little bit afraid all of the time. Do you notice that? Like even, even if you get so meditated, so peaceful, there's like this buzzing that the body does. There's like this high, this vibration that the body does that's the nervous system just like going. And if you ever sink into even deep states of concentration and uh, samadhi, you'll, you'll feel this like, oh, there's just this sort of core uh, anxiousness that's part of the body normal now if it's too intense we you know call it an anxiety disorder or panic attacks or and some of you experience that but the hindrance of anxiousness uh you know this is also a way that the buddha is just saying if you're mindful you'll see this in your mind you'll see that you're anxious you'll see that you're craving you'll see that you're aversive it's just part of what the human mind does and you know going on from uh, and part of the manifestation of that uh, anxiousness is worrying 
part of your mind worrying is just a natural, impersonal part of that anxiousness and that fear and that aversion to an unpleasant outcome and a craving for a pleasant outcome. Maybe I can worry it away. <laughs> I think about this enough over and over and obsess on it. Also, not your fault if you do that. Some people's minds have more tendency towards worrying than others. But when we believe the mind, we suffer about it a lot. When we're addicted to it, when we're identified with it, when we're entangled, part of what mindfulness is doing is helping us unentangle uh, from being so identified with this human mind, impersonal, universal experience of, of having a body and a mind and seeing it clearly and saying like, oh yeah, there's this craving and there's aversion and there's anxiousness. And then the next thing on the list is he said, there's um, like procrastination and it's called sloth and torpor, sleepiness, laziness, the tendency to not, I don't want to deal with that shit right now, <laughs> procrastinate. Uh, to kind of tune out. If it's extreme, we call it dissociation where you're really like check out. But I can remember early on, I was falling asleep a lot when I was meditating. And um, I asked the teacher about it. And I was like, you know, I'm falling asleep. Like, what should I do? And they, and they said, you know, sometimes falling asleep is just, you're just tired. And it's not, but sometimes it's this hindrance where there's like almost this psychological shutdown that happens where you're getting, you're starting to see through uh, Mara. You're starting to see through the mind. I always think of the Wizard of Oz. Most of you know the story of, you know, Toto and the Cowardly and the Tin and the Dorothy and, um, and right when they're getting close to, like, I think of Mara, Mara, this Buddhist, I think of Mara as the, um, as the wizard that we all have, this internal wizard that's like just this scared little ego self, but that it's pushing all of the buttons and making all of the bright lights and, and you know, like smoke machines or whatever was happening. <laughs> Right, but there's that part of our mind that's, and that the, the poppy field, right? When they're on their way to Oz and they're almost there and the, the, and the wizard has the poppy field, or I don't know if it's the wicked witches or the wizard or whoever, but there's the fucking poppy field and everyone goes to sleep. <laughs> and that, that this hindrance of sloth and torpor, sometimes it's exhaustion because you're busy and you're burning it and running it hot. And sometimes it's actually, there's a part of our mind that's like, oh, I don't want to see that. Or part of our mind that doesn't want us to see through it. And it will knock you out. And it'll, you know, like I was came in and I was energized and I just did two shots of espresso and I'm out. And it's not because I'm tired. It's because I'm avoiding. Not intentionally but there's a part of my mind that's just shutting down. You ever like in the middle of a fight in your relationship and they're like, well, and you're like, I'm just tired. 
<laughs> I'm just so fucking exhausted. No, I'm just tired. And it's kind of true, right? Like you're, but emotions are exhausting. And there's part of you that's just like, I'm just can't stay in this conflict anymore. Just shutting down now. Normal, not your fault, part of being human. Hindrance. The fifth and final hindrance. And, and this, Buddha, this statue is not doing it, but you know the statues where um, the Buddha is sitting and he's got one hand in his lap and he's got one hand touching the earth. It's a pretty common, what's called mudra, kind of hand positions. The story of the Buddha's enlightenment really is the story of the hindrances. He said, I had practiced mindfulness. I'd seen the pleasant, unpleasant nature of all things. I'd come to understand that it was all impermanent. I'd started to understand that it was impersonal. And my mind attacked me. On the verge of awakening, my mind attacked me with lust and hatred. And when lust and hatred, greed and craving and... Uh, aversion and, and resentment. Uh, he said, and I saw through those, I was able to meet the hatred with compassion and the lust with non-attachment, non-identification. And just seeing, he's like, this is just what the mind does, not self, not personal, not my fault, not who I am. And then the, the Mara, the wizard, whatever we want to call it, final attack and, and uh, greatest hindrance to us is doubt. It's the fifth hindrance is, is doubt. And that uh, Mara attacks the Buddha and says, um, you can't do this. Enlightenment's impossible. Happiness is impossible. Who do you think you are? You say that to yourself sometimes, your mind, you ever notice your mind saying, Oh, meditating, huh? <laughs> Who the fuck do you think you are? What happened to you? <laughs> Doubting, like, is this, should I be, should I be going to meditation? Should I be putting all this time and energy into this path? Uh, does this work? And doubt on two levels. One is doubt into the, and there's a, like a healthy sense of skepticism and doubt that I encourage. And I think the Buddha encouraged where he said, don't have blind faith. Don't just believe this shit. Find out for yourself. So there's a, a healthy doubt, right? Like when you hear a teacher, don't believe them. Like when you listen to me or other teachers, you don't, we're not asking for like blind confidence in what we're saying. So some uh, skepticism is encouraged, a healthy inquiry, investigation. But that part of the mind that says it's just not possible. Human beings can't not suffer. Happiness, that's not really an option. Not with the reality of all of the greed and hatred and delusion and oppression and ignorance of the world we live in. How could it be? How could we not be affected by the history of atrocities, of racism, of sexism, of uh, homophobic oppression? How could we not, how could we be happy in this world of ignorance? 
of violence, of torture. How could it be possible? Or, so there's that doubt that, that just it's not possible. Doubt in the Dharma. And it's something for you to ask yourself, and I ask the Sangha sometimes, um, how much confidence do you have in the Buddha's teaching that nirvana, awakening, freedom, whatever you want to call it, the end of suffering is actually possible? Do you believe that? And a lot of people will say like, yeah, I do believe it. It makes sense. The way that the Buddha lays it out of like, clinging causes suffering, non-attachment, no suffering. <laughs> Aversion causes suffering. Compassion, no suffering. It's like, it's, so it's like, oh yeah, that sounds possible. So then there's the other doubt, the, uh, that level of the mind attacking the critical, the, uh, that doubts our own capacity. Sure, Buddhism teaches a path of liberation, but I can't do it. Other people probably can. I've heard it's possible, but I don't have the capacity. I don't have the discipline. I don't have the uh, willingness to, to practice the renunciation necessary. I don't, uh, I can't do it. I'm too wounded. Your mind ever tell you that? I'm too fucked up. Other people probably can, because they're like, they look healthy. But my traumatic childhood makes it impossible for me. I can't do it. And it's just doubt. But you, you know, and I think that um, the reason that this is considered the most dangerous or most powerful uh, attack or hindrance is because if you believe doubt, you'll stop practicing. If your mind actually convinces you that you can't or that it's not possible, you'll give up the path. And it's what, that, it's what that part of the mind is trying to do, is trying to say like, hey, don't, the wizard is like, hey, don't, do not look behind this curtain. There's nothing to see here. And it's, it's Mara's final attack, that part of the mind that's like threatened by your happiness, threatened by our ability to wake up and is saying like don't don't proceed any further and the flying monkeys and the poppy fields and the smoke machines are to deter you from seeing the truth that the wizard the mara whatever we call it is just a totally impersonal fear-based survival instinct not not as powerful as we we give it all of this power when we believe it and without meditation everyone believes it it's normal without actually turning towards the mind with this non-judgmental investigative kind awareness we all just believe our minds and this is where it's so radical what we're doing, what the Buddha taught, what we're trying to do. So that these hindrances are normal. 
And that no matter how, and this is so important, no matter how much we practice, they're not going away. And that idea that so often we've come to our spiritual practice with is if I meditate enough and I go to enough retreats and I do enough service and I am good, then eventually my mind will stop being an asshole. My mind will just be kind and loving and compassionate and, right? Because that's what I'm, I'm practicing metta, I'm practicing compassion, I'm doing all of this stuff. And the Buddha said, it's not what happened for him. He said, I'm a fully awakened being. I have compassion for all living beings. I don't suffer at all, ever, something like that. He said, but my mind's still an asshole sometimes because it's what it's like to have a human mind. He said, I do. I, he said, every time now I've developed the ability to say, I see you. I'm mindful of those unskillful thoughts that arise. I no longer get hooked in by them. I no longer suffer about them. They no longer hinder my happiness because I know that they're not who I am. It's just the human condition. What do you think? Does it make sense? So I'll open to questions, comments. I'm new to this. How do I just raise my hand? Or... Yeah, sure. Just jump in there. I don't understand the comment about Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so everything is impermanent. Does that make sense to you? And then when we cling to, attached to impermanent things, what happens? When you attach to some things that you can't, they're by their nature, they're impermanent. People, places, things, experiences end. But when we cling to them and they end, the outcome is heartache. heartache. Yeah. So you do understand it. Mm -hmm. But how do we stop clinging? The more we understand impermanence truly, not theoretically, but through our meditation practice, and we really start to have insight into impermanence, and we incline our mind towards non-clinging and really train our mind. You know, some of it's just this conversation of like, oh, I need to try to do this, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to do it today, but I'm going to keep trying to do it. I'm going to orient my life towards trying to be non-attached. And every time I see myself clinging, I'm going to remind myself, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> this will never end well. It will always create suffering 100% of the time. Now, I think it's important to make a distinction between attachment and connection, because I'm not sure what the experience that you're talking about is, but like in relationships, um connection feels great connection both of us 
present uh, wanting to be connected. That's the sweet spot. But attachment is when maybe one person is like, I'm connected and the other person is like, well, I'm fucking attached. Or even if we both cling to each other because we're changing moods and attitudes and you know we're, we're unfolding, evolving beings, attachment always is going to hurt. Uh, non-attached connection doesn't hurt because then when they or it or whatever is happening is changing, you're like, I'm okay with that because I'm practicing non-attachment. Like I understand that change is inevitable and I'm going to stay right here present for you. And hopefully, you know, we'll reconnect, but there's going to be these moments of connection and disconnection and reconnection and all relationships. So some of it is just understanding. I need to let go. I need to allow I need to train my mind to be less attached, more non-attached appreciation, connection rather than control, clinging. Meditation will do it. Mindfulness will do it over the months and years of your practice. Understanding this, reminding yourself, surrounding yourself with people who also understand that our goal is to be connected and not trying to control each other by clinging. This open, loving connection is the goal. And then, of course, there's just the humility that in relationship, especially, there's going to be this like clinging and then maybe detachment, like overcompensation of like, oh, that hurts. Now I'm going to go away from you. And then a coming back together and a connection and then a clinging and then a disconnection and then a connection and then a clinging and then a, this dance of trying to be non-attached. I've been trying for over 30 years now. I can't do it. I'm happy to admit that I can't maintain absolute non-connected, you know, non-attached connection to my children, to my partner, to, I can't do it, but I keep trying. I keep, you know, I'm sure that I'm much better at it than I was decades ago before I started to understand impermanence and started to try to practice non-attachment. But there's just something about, uh, you know, as I said, we're just wired in this way that we just want to cling. This feels good. I want to keep it. I want more. And then, oh, that's now I'm suffering. <laughs> oh, that hurts. Disconnect, reconnect. Does it make sense more in that explanation, or is there another piece no, that's was, not? Yeah, it was, it's, it's helpful when I think of attachment. I think of it principally with relationships, so that's the filter on. Yeah, yeah. Non-attached relationship is possible, but it's a dance, right? It's not like we're going to do it perfectly. But we have to first like even want that. Like most of the time we think, you know, and then psychology is fucking us all up by saying healthy attachments, you know, attachment theory. Like you should be attached to your primary caregivers and in your relationships and you healthy attachments. Um, and it's semantics because in Buddhism, we're saying there's no such thing as a healthy attachment ever. If you're attached, you're suffering. But that always struck me about like the simile of the alphabet. It seems to assume that you're both on the same page. 
that you're doing the dance together. Yeah, the, I just keep on thinking, qualifying it whenever I think about that. When someone brings that up in terms of relationships, I think of that too. Well, that was a professional relationship. You're talking about the business proposition. Okay, well, you watch my back, I'll watch yours. No, 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 I'll you watch your space, yeah. I'll watch, you know, we're responsible for our own spaces. But that really doesn't apply to more intimate relationships. Well, and especially when you're falling in love because you're basically drunk. And, you know, and the, the intoxication of love is like, you know, good luck, non-attachment in that intoxication. So there's some surrender to it and knowing that it's a process. And you know, there's that scale in psychology, the secure attachment scale. I learned about it in rehab. And it's like, there's this like perfect section where you're securely attached and like that's like people that are raised in perfect families and they have like the loving mother and father and everything is great and then they have these you know every relationship is they kind of have this like perfect golden spot and would you say that that's someone that's enlightened and is not attached because there's like people in life i'm like they just seem all their relationships are great you know getting married and they're having all these you know what i mean it's like and they just stay in, and they're they're content they're whole there's some people that i feel sometimes not a lot there are people who are just like straight up maybe it's their circumstance um maybe they're from another planet <laughs> i i have to admit that like i'm skeptical um and the first noble truth really does apply to everyone even the people who from the outside look like they've got it all going on, even, even to those, um, you know, in the unicorn zone of secure attachment, they still experience the first noble truth. They still experience repetitive craving. And it's just impossible, even in that kind of ideal uh, realm that you're talking about. And from the outside looks good, the, family and the career and the house and all of that stuff. And it looks like everything's going, they're suffering too. Whether it's as extreme as our suffering of addiction, maybe not, maybe it's a, a lower level, but they, everyone is subject to the first noble truth, whether we see it or not. Nobody that is unenlightened uh, and nobody's born enlightened, right? So you have to do the work to get there the, the, without mindfulness. We're all in craving, we're all in an aversion. These hindrances are universal mind states that everyone has to deal with. Um, and it's true that traumatic experiences in our lives make these things more intense and our reactivity more extreme and uh, the work that we have to do to heal and, and recover and awaken more um, urgent than people who are somewhat well-adjusted and don't have a attachment disorder. <laughs> Couple of questions online. Maybe I'll just take this one. Lee, we'll go for the last one. Go for it. Hey, uh, thanks so much, Noah and everyone. Um, I, I'm I'm still like in the same thoughts that you're talking about. So um, I'm just curious, like how do you how do you interrupt this obsession of the craving? Like, you know, how do you access humility when you can't really see that that's what it needs? Like, cause I feel like right now 
it's so obvious, right? And I feel like whenever I go to Sangha and when I'm actually meditating, it feels very obvious where you can, how you can interrupt it. But in the middle of a conversation or like, you know, when I'm riding my bike and I'm just like ready to go get this craving, <laughs> it's like, how do you interrupt it? There, is there certain things you you've learned to say to yourself like over and over again that's like to access the humility or I don't know yeah it's a great question can people mostly hear it I don't know that I have any um I don't know that I have a good answer for it my own experience is that it's been more much more of sort of a gradual gradual process of um, less and less identification, less and less um, tendency to obey my mind, but that that happened over the years of practice. And that, that in the early years of practice, mostly I would catch it afterwards. Um, like I think that that's what happens for a lot of us. So it's like, uh, we don't, there's not an intervention before we create some suffering for ourselves or give into the, but afterwards we're like, oh fuck, I just did that again but we start to catch it and then we catch it more quickly. And um, I don't know if you're in recovery or not, Lee, but I, I think one of the places where I start to see it change, like in my first 10 years or so of addiction recovery, I did a um, inventory, like a 10 step uh, inventory of my day every day. And I admit, I don't do that anymore, but in the first decade I did do it. And that's where I started to see the changes happening of like, oh, I'm less reactive. I, I had some ability to have some renunciation. I, um, and I just started seeing that like, it wasn't all uh, negative sort of reactive stuff that was happening in that first 10 years of meditating most days and going to retreats and attending a weekly meditation class where just like you're saying, I got those reminders and like at class, it was crystal clear, like, oh yeah, this shit makes sense. But then um, I'm going to end with this. In 1997, I was 96. It's like 96, 97. I was in India. I was doing this year to live practice as though I had one year to live. I was um, about 89, almost 10 years sober. Uh, 96, 97, yeah, nine years sober. And um, serious about practice. Had done lots of retreats. And I just come from a several day uh, teaching with the, the Dalai Lama in Bodh Gaya. And I'd been at this big empowerment and and I'd taken the Bodhisattva vows where I had vowed that I will not take liberation until all beings are liberated. And I was so sincere and I was so fucking spiritual. You wouldn't believe how spiritual I was. And I was vegan and I was sugar free and I was celibate. And I mean, I was wearing white clothing. It was amazing. And then I was with some friends and we went to um, check into this guest house and we we're with this Australian guy with long dreadlocks that was traveling with us and the guest house people wouldn't let us into the guest house. And um, because they said he was a bad Baba, which like Baba means like spiritual. Like he was, he was, because the Babas are the sadhus in India and they have dreads and, 
And but this is like a white Australian guy. And he's like, you can't come in with that guy. He's like a bad guy. And I got enraged. I had just taken the Bodhisattva vow to alleviate the suffering of all living beings. And I had this big white pipe and I was like, I'll bash your fucking head in. <laughs> And, you know, like uh, that happened. And I was so sincere about being compassionate and non-attached and, and I just didn't have the non-reactivity yet at that point in my, that first, you know, nine years um, on the path. And then there was just sort of the humility and, and my, my friend that was also um, their carved fascists into their guest house sign and you know like these were people that went on to become dharma teachers and were you know and had the aspiration and lo loved the dharma but just didn't have the skill to be not reactive yet and so just you know i share that with you lee as like i can relate to have that head full of the aspiration of perfect dharmic response and not have the skill yet and that you know hopefully now you know that was 20 something years ago uh, hopefully now i would react differently to that same situation uh, and not threaten violence i think i think i probably could now tolerate such a uh, insult to my friend's character um, I'll leave it there for tonight. <laughs> Thank you for your practice against the stream uh, needs your support always needs your support. We are a nonprofit organization. Obviously, we don't charge for classes online or here in person. But the way that this thing works is that people offer to donate, offer their generosity, become monthly supporters of the nonprofit of the center. Please consider doing that. If you can give 25 or 50 or $100 a month, that goes a long way to paying the rent and supporting the center. If you'd like to make a one-time donation tonight online, there's a link Jeff has posted, donations. Um, you can go right through the link to the website and make a donation online. Or if you're here in person, uh, Tara's at the desk. Um, do we have the square set up? Um, Tara has been volunteering to host for the last um, few months. She Some stuff's taking her out of town. I actually need some help. I need someone to sit at the front desk and she, she can train someone on how to do the square to take the donations with card. Anybody willing to do that, which means you're going to show up every Monday? Anybody? Anybody? When does that start? Well, she's going to be gone for the next couple weeks. Yeah, I can't do it till till after your show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you would talk to Tara and then uh, and then um, China set set up tonight. But is there a couple people that are willing to show up early at around seven on Mondays and help set up? China is. Yeah. And Nicole, when you get back, yeah, and you'll come early. Great. Um, and then clean up. You guys can clean up after yourselves. Chairs get stacked. You can leave the front row because there's refuge meetings here in the morning. So you can leave the front row, stack the back three rows over there. Um, you can leave them for now or you can, yeah. Um, announcements of upcoming things. 
two things. I'm going to be here the next two nights. Tomorrow night, I'm starting a refuge recovery meeting. The first, so we're starting a Tuesday night refuge. If you're in recovery, 6.30 p.m. Tuesday nights, refuge recovery. Uh, Lily and I are going to host and secretary that meeting. So come, if you're in recovery, to the Tuesday night, 6.30 refuge starts tomorrow. Wednesday night, I'm going to teach for Jason. Jason's out of town, and I'm going to sub the Wednesday night, 7.30 class. I'll also, we'll be streaming that if you want to catch the Wednesday night class at home. Uh, Jason's regular Wednesday, 7.30, but I'll be here in person. Come sit with me on Wednesday. Um, and we have morning meditations. Russ is hosting a sort of like peer-led sitting on Tuesdays and Thursdays as a 50-minute silent sit on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 a.m., correct? And we were talking today where he's thinking about doing it daily. I don't know how many of you have it in your schedule or have the interest to come in the morning and do your daily practice with community, but um, he's thinking about doing it for his own practice. And are you going to start it this week? Started. So we're going to start... 6.30 a.m. in person, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, half hour. I mean, maybe there's people at home that want to do it too. We could maybe open the Zoom so people could sit at home. I don't know. Um, but right now it's in person if you want to come and sit for your daily morning practice with some community. The Against the Stream, the Refuge Recovery Retreat is sold out in November in, in New Mexico, but there is room for the October uh, Joshua Tree Retreat. So if you're planning to come to that, uh, sign up soon. It's getting close to being sold out. And we have lots of requests for um, scholarship, probably more than we're able to offer at this point. We did get somebody from the Sangha gave us some scholarship money, but I think it's all been eaten up. If there's anybody in the Sangha that wants to donate so that people can attend the retreat that can't quite afford it, or if you're in a place where you can't quite afford it and you want to attend, register for a scholarship. I'm going to try to do some fundraising to get everybody who wants to come on retreat the ability to come. Um, okay, that's good. May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions may each of us come to awakening and together may we create a positive change on this planet thank you and see you tomorrow and wednesday and next monday no, saturday. saturday what oh there's also a new refuge saturday night so there's now meeting refuge meetings here tuesday thursday and saturday nights Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.